If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The Mali Empire dominated swathes of West Africa for up to 400 years. Powered by a brilliant cavalry, enormous gold reserves and a succession of charismatic and eye-wateringly wealthy leaders. Yet its achievements are still relatively little known in the West. Spencer Mizen sat down with Kevin MacDonald, Professor of African Archaeology at UCL, to discuss everything you wanted to know about the Mali Empire. As always with this series, our questions are drawn from a mixture of popular internet search queries and ones that you've submitted on our various social media platforms. Right, so we're here to discuss everything you wanted to know about the history of the Mali Empire, which will consist of questions submitted on our various social media platforms and popular queries on online search engines. So, Kevin, I wanted to start with a message from Siobhan O'Farrell, which was submitted on Instagram. She says, I know very little about it, it being the Mali Empire, a good basic introduction would be great. So I wonder if you could start by giving us a very quick overview of the Mali Empire. When are we talking about here? Where are we talking about? And can you tell us a little bit about the different peoples who populated the empire? First of all, Mali was West Africa's greatest empire, perhaps Sub-Saharan Africa's greatest empire in terms of in terms of size and influence in terms of date roughly we're looking at an origin of the empire around 1235 AD and with the empire then continuing as a major political force until around 1450 and then trailing off after that to an indefinite time period where where it was reduced and mainly situated in what is now southern Mali and Guinea, and that could and could have gone until the seventeenth century, perhaps. In terms of where Mali is situated geographically, it is centered in what is uh, modern Mali, which probably isn't surprising, uh, but to the west, it would have extended to the Senegalese coast and certainly would have included uh, most all of Senegal. And then going towards the uh, south uh, into Guinea, and then going to the west, there was, of course, contemporary with Mali, uh, the Songhai 
polity, uh, which also existed in some form contemporaneously with Mali. And that would have blocked expansion to some areas in uh, in the east. But we know that there were Mandate trading settlements from the time of Mali extending as far as uh, northwest Nigeria. So a considerable part of, of West Africa. And of course, it's difficult to state exact political boundaries because they were always in flux. In terms of people, Mali is populated, of course, today by great diversity of peoples, and their ancestors would no doubt have been present then. People speaking a whole range of languages across the Niger-Congo, Nilo-Saharan, and Afro-Asiatic language phyla. But the core population of Mali would have been uh, speakers of Mande languages. So that is that is to say that Mande languages are a subset of Niger-Congo languages. And the predominant ethnic group would have been the Malinke, the people of Mali. But there is a a long political tradition, a very sophisticated political tradition, among Mande peoples stretching back into the second millennium BC and continuing up until the present day through a whole sequence of different states and empires. Okay, now... Franchise505, messaging us on Instagram, wants to know how it became an empire. So can we go back to the beginning? Can you give us a little bit more detail on the origins of Imperial Mali? There is history and then there is legend. And of course, I suppose there's also archaeology. The beginnings of Mali are traced to two Kingdoms. I mean, kingdom is probably not the correct word. They are what would be termed kafu, which are confederacies, uh, polities, what are also referred to as segmentary states. So these are lineage-based, but yet not extremely hierarchical states, which existed for centuries prior to the beginnings of Imperial Mali. And there, 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 there would be a whole field of different kafu, and they are uh, do and kri, and uh, these are still very heavy words in the in the in the Mande vocabulary. What's fascinating is that the uh, Arabic geographer Al Adrizi he actually uh, places these uh, as as extant statelets or what have you in 1150 AD, thereabouts, so a century effectively before the Empire of Mali. But he calls them Dao, which is close enough really to Do, and Malel, which is interesting because, of course, that foreshadows Mali. So we know them as sort of points on a map at that point, and we know them from tradition as having been at the heart of the story of the origins of the empire. And this is told in a myth, which is the uh, known as the, the, the story of the Dosigi. Uh, and so this is effectively the, the monster of the Do, uh, or the monster buffalo of the Do. And in very brief outline, there is this enormous African buffalo, but, uh, you know, a uh, a monstrous, not just a big one, but a monstrous buffalo, which is terrorizing the doe, which is destroying fields, which is killing people. And it's too much for any hunters. And so the uh, essentially it would be the Kafu Tigi, the head of the, of the doe, uh, sends out an appeal saying that if anyone can come and rid them of this monster, he will give them whatever they want, wealth, bribe, whatever. And so, uh, so, Two hunters go from Cree to uh, to see off this buffalo, and the buffalo proves to be too much for them. But perhaps because of a, a prophecy or mercy or fatigue, the doe, who in fact is sort of the um, the, the monstrous form of a human being, speaks to them and says, "I will let you slaughter me." But this is what you must do uh, in terms of claiming your reward. 
So the hunters accept this offer, and essentially what uh, they've been told to do is that when they're asked by the, the head of the doe what they want, they're to say that they want to take back as a bride for their ruler, decree, a particular woman who is not particularly uh, attractive. She's humpbacked. And, uh, and of course, the, the ruler of Doe is astounded by this request, but he grants it, and they take this woman back to Cree, who, in the meantime, the, the ruler of Cree had been told by his uh, wise men that he would be brought this woman from Doe by hunters, and uh, he was to take her as a bride because uh, by this woman he would have the, the greatest ruler of them all would be born. And so this happens, and this ruler has a child, and indeed uh, it said children, with this woman, uh, Sogolon Kande is her name. And, uh, of course, the eldest of these is Sinjata Keta, um, who goes on to become the first emperor of Mali. More broadly speaking, Mali comes into being uh, from a time of great conflict. So you had had Ghana, Wagadu, holding things together for many centuries. And then uh, with its collapse, there is a struggle for power between a number of different political confederacies. And the one which becomes dominant at, you say, in the early 13th century is called Soso. And it's ruled over by this famous legendary character, uh, Sumanguru Kante, who has all sorts of attributes which, as a Mande ruler, you should not have. That is to say, he has a lot of attributes that one would normally associate with casted people, uh, in that he plays a musical instrument. He has a balafon, and he was said to be the inventor of the balafon, which is a type of xylophone with resonators. And then also he is seen as a kind of blacksmith, figure as well, and very tightly aligned with this sort of pyrotechnology, but also with the sorcery associated with that. So within the Mandé literature, he's painted in very dark colors. But yet, if you go to the area where Sumanguru uh, Kante comes from, uh, he's seen as a hero still today. So it's, it's, a, it's sort of a fascinating thing. But anyway... Sunjata Keita, his homeland, so Cree, is uh, has become dominated by Sumaguru. So he goes to the Mema, which is an uh, autonomous kingdom at that time with a military, and eventually he convinces their uh, ruler to loan him forces to do battle with Sumaguru, and also he raises troops from his own area. And after a series of battles and a war, somewhere probably near to modern Kulikuro in Mali, there was a decisive battle, and uh, Sumaguru was vanquished. It said that he either turned to stone or disappeared into a cavern. And out of this came the Empire of Mali. It was uh, Sunjata who was able to unite many of these uh, kafu, or statelets, that were in conflict into a combined multi-ethnic empire, and also to establish uh, a set of ethical rules for the governance of this empire. But nevertheless, he had a reputation as being a a just ruler who set up the parameters for the empire, which would grow substantially under future rulers. Now, you mentioned there that the empire grew substantially. I mean, that that takes me to a, a popular internet search query, and that is, what factors drove the rise of the Mali empire? I mean, what was the secrets of its success? I would say perhaps five different things. First of all, in its successful years... Good leadership. The uh, you, you you had effective rulers. Uh, you had councils of governance. It was a good system to begin with. The second is you have a very rich agricultural base. It's it's um, 
until, I don't know, uh, a decade or two ago, the inland Niger Delta in Mali was fully capable of feeding all of West Africa. Uh, so this is a incredibly well-watered, rich soils, and a whole host of different grains, particularly millet and sorghum uh, and African rice, fonio, and so on. So, so there's, there's a, a great deal of agricultural resource available. Also, the herds, which would seasonally come in and out of this region. And, you know, the Inland Niger Delta was very much part of the heart of the, the Mali Empire. So good, stable subsistence space for a large population. And of course, demographics were much smaller then, so plenty. Also, you have unique access to a substantial gold supply, which Mali was effectively interposed between the locations of that gold uh, and North Africa. So it was able to broker and uh, coordinate the trans-Saharan gold trade, which was a source of enormous wealth and prestige. And, of course, quite crucial uh, at that time to the Mediterranean world and the Islamic world more broadly. And that which then goes to the the next thing, which is that uh, prior to there being an empire of Mali, there was already an established trans-Saharan trade going by several different routes northwards to, you know, what is now uh, Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, and so forth. And this is a, these are trade routes which existed since late uh, Byzantine times. So the, uh, the, the ability to uh, pull on those for things which were needed from the north uh, was very important to the, the power of the uh, of the emperor. Finally, there's also a military aspect, which has to do with Mali developing the most important cavalry arm uh, of any country in West Africa at that time. And there's uh, we we find this archaeologically, and we also uh, find it in. Uh, oral traditions, we even find it in in song. For example, there's one great warlord of the Empire of Mali who might have been contemporaneous with Sunjata, he might have been slightly later, uh, called Silamakamba Koita. And associated with him is a song, uh, a praise song, which is still sung today for Malian leaders, uh, called Solio, uh, which means call the horses. So being horses, and uh, and so the uh, you know the, the and Silamakamba Koita's name is actually invoked in that song, and and it's you know basically it's you know call the horses, this person is too great not to ride, uh, and it's it's you know it talks about the horses of Silamakamba, and it said that he was the person who really developed cavalry warfare in the Sahel. But of course, this is also part of the trans-Saharan trade because horses are not indigenous to West Africa. They're having to come from North Africa. So a, a breeding stock of horses had to be developed. And then in an area where you didn't, uh, so, so away from heavily watered areas, you then had to breed up these populations. So Mali assembled a significant cavalry arm to their army, which made them regionally dominant. Do you know how the subject peoples were treated and what the subject peoples thought of their of their rulers during the time of the the Mali Empire? It's it's difficult to say because the nature of history is that disenfranchised people generally don't get an opportunity to write it. And so in a sense, what you have to look at is the um, the archaeology. And at this point, research is concentrated so much on just trying to define the parameters of Mali's center that the edges aren't looked at quite so much. You, what you what you do uh, wind up with are uh, different client states, uh, like Kabu in uh, in uh, Senegal, for example. And uh, and there's beginning to be an archaeology of of Kabu, but again, starting by looking at its capitals. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. 
So that was the lie at the heart of all of this and the, the inherent racism which was, which was present, uh, which was saying, yes, you know, these things are all there and look, you know, there's a massive tumulus or look, there's a massive settlement and there are all these ruins. But this was because this was all being stimulated from a, a genius coming from abroad. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. Now, you've uh, already mentioned Sunjata the founder of the Mali Empire. Now I want to turn to a ruler who possibly eclipses even him, and that's Mansa Musa. We've got a couple of questions uh, in on him. Um, the first one is, can you tell us anything and everything about Mansa Musa? Our students love him. That's from um, Avonborn History on Instagram. And here's another question submitted on Instagram. This is from Bill Dozer. This is how true is it that Mansa Musa gave out so much gold that he caused a 10-year recession? So he sounds like a pretty colourful character and a, a really towering figure in, in the history of the Mali Empire. So yeah, it'd be, it'd be great to know a bit more about him. What's amazing about Mansa Musa is from the exterior, he's probably the Malian ruler we know most about. But from the interior, he's the ruler we know the least about. And so really I have to respond to this uh, in two different segments. One is what do we know about Mansa Musa from historical documents? And the second is why do we know so little about Mansa Musa from internal oral historical documents? So um, first of all, and of course, you know, a, a lot of things are are contested, but things we know to some degree of certainty is that Mansa Musa was probably the grandnephew or a grandnephew of Sunjata Keita. So he would have been, in a sense, a prince of the blood. There were some rulers who were not related to Sunjata between him and Sunjata. He said to have been the grandson of one Abu Bakr, uh, who was a brother of Sunjata. We can be fairly confident that he ruled in terms of years A.D. between 1312 and 1337, so for 25 years. So a relatively long reignal length. We know he was a strongly Islamic ruler, which is is... Although nominally the earlier rulers of Mali were Muslims, he was uh, he embraced Islam to an entirely different degree to any prior ruler. We know that he presided over the most affluent and influential years of the empire. And we know that he undertook the Hajj, uh, in, in 1324, and on his way to Mecca, he passed through Cairo, and there he uh, dispersed great quantities of gold. And I, I wouldn't necessarily say this is uh, something that caused a recession, but it's, uh, it's something that caused a 10 to 25% decrease in the value of gold in Egypt for up to a decade. So a recession might be too strong a word, but he certainly had a significant 
economic impact. I mean, that's still an incredible statistic, isn't it? Even if it's not a recession. Absolutely. Absolutely. Now, then there are other aspects about Mansa Musa that are more contested. One is, and this comes from an account of a conversation he had while he was in Cairo. He said that his predecessor, who we believe to have gone by the name of Muhammad, perished while undertaking an exploration of the Atlantic, that he had become obsessed with what lay beyond the sea to the west, and he equipped a large fleet, and he sailed off into the distance and never came back. And, of course, a lot of things have been developed uh, from this and suppositions made. But we only know this from the result of one interview uh, transcribed during his stay in Cairo, and that's the full extent of what we know about that in factual terms. There is a lot of speculation, of course, uh, about what happened after this. He also built several monumental mosques on his return from the Hajj in Mali, or at least so many different. Anytime you find the foundations for some monumental structure dating to that period in Mali, it's automatically assumed this is something that uh, Mansa Musa built. It's said that, you know, at one extreme, uh, on every Friday, wherever he halted, he, he ordered a mosque to be built. It may be, uh, but we don't have proof. Uh, there is a mosque in Timbuktu, which is uh, thought to have, have been built in this fashion. And it's associated with another challenged or questionable part of the narrative is that this was designed by uh, al-Sahili, uh, who is a North African poet and architect who is said to have joined Mansa Musa's entourage during his channels. And to some extent, the development of the distinctive Sudanic architectural style, which is sort of a combination of West African and North African textual styles is attributed to him. That used to be quite popular. Of course, it's entirely possible that this was an entirely indigenous invention without necessarily a direct influence from al-Sahili or uh, another uh, North African architect. Who knows? But those are some of the more debated aspects of, of Mansa Musa's heritage. Then we come to the question about you know, if if you're studying African history from the outside and you're reading the books, especially if you're reading the, the, the various collections of transcriptions from Arabic texts, you think, wow, you know, Mansa Musa is really at the center of things. If you go to Mali and start working on oral traditions, as I've done over the years with uh, Seydou Kamara and, and others, what you find is a complete absence of Mansa Musa. And you have to ask why has have, have the oral traditionists of Mali chosen to forget someone who is so famous? I mean, he's, he's, there is no epic of Mansa Musa. Even if you go around from place to place doing local histories of, you know, local memory and legend, you find virtually nothing about Mansa Musa. And this is something I've reflected on, and I have three ideas as to why this is the case. The first uh, and sort of most troubling of these is it is said that he murdered his mother, that he was a matricide of his mother, whose name was Nana Kankan. And within the Mandate worldview, within any worldview, really, the killing of one's mother is so impossible uh, and such a despicable act that it, this might explain why he was scrubbed out of history. There, there, there are arguments that this might have been accidentally, might have been tricked into doing this or all sorts of different things. Nevertheless, that's one possibility because it's just absolutely breaking the bounds of, of what's thought to be possible. Second, it, it might be that his story as a narrative form might not have been so interesting. In other words, epics are based around impossible challenges and overcoming them. So Mansa Musa, you know, assumes power. He uh, is already, you know, coming to a nation that's very wealthy. He goes out and he disperses that wealth. You know, one could also say that he dispersed too much of the wealth, uh, took too much of the gold outside of the territory. 
And that, so so in this sense, there was just not a story with an object lesson that the griots, the sort of bardic figures of the Mandate world, wanted to tell. The third and final notion is that within the Mandate world, you have this continual oscillation, and it's continued until recent decades, between what's referred to as uh, Bamanaya, which is a traditional earth religion and the mystic forces of, of Mali itself, and Islam. And it's, it, there has been no smooth path to his Islamicization in Mali. Uh, there has been a, an oscillation between the two. There have been periods of rejection uh, of 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 Islam, and the and Islamization was never really total. There were you know and e- you know even today there are practitioners of uh, of Earth religion in uh, in Mali, and it could be that Mansa Musa's wholehearted embrace of Islam and sympathy with those coming from the Islamic world an attempt uh, to convert and, uh, and, and spread Islam within Mali was resented by this, uh, this large portion of the population which continued to practice their own religion. Now, you've mentioned oral histories on a couple of occasions and archaeology. That kind of leads me to our next question, which comes from Muffin288 on Instagram. And that is, what are our sources for the exploits of the Mali Empire? What What is the archaeological evidence? I mean, and also supplementary to that, how much of a challenge is it being a historian of the Mali Empire? There are three basic types of sources that we have. First of all, there are written sources. <clears throat> and these written sources are both old parts of tariqs or chronicles, which really go back to the late first millennium AD, and then continue on. And these tend to be relatively punctual, you know, a sentence here, a paragraph there. But then you get to these great historical epics of, uh, of, of West Africa, and these are, are books which uh, were written by people of local descent, but trained uh, within the madrasa of Timbuktu, and which, although they largely deal with the empire of Songhai, also have sections in them about the empire of Mali, which are extremely useful and in more detail. So these are written in, in Arabic, but by local scholars. Then you have oral traditions, and these can be broken into, very broadly, into two forms. One are epics, which have in and of themselves episodes, which can be sort of sectioned off and involve sort of narrative poetry and music. And these are memorized generation upon generation by by griots and performed at important festival days or on demand by various elites. And because they're repeated and they have associated with them all sorts of uh, mnemonic devices, Uh, so in other words, uh, sequences of numbers, sequences of names or events, uh, they have a, a durability Uh, an ability to pass between generations with relatively less editing. Of course, there is editing which goes on continually, but they they do have a greater durability than some other oral forms. That said, they can also be problematic because uh, over time, uh, certain episodes might prove unpopular or certain uh, rulers might... Uh, be unpopular for current political reasons, and so those might stop being performed. They might uh, disappear. But even so, the amazing thing is, is the Mandate world is such a big place. I mean, you know, today, especially, say, you know, from from Mali through Guinea into Gambia and so on, 
that usually a lot of epics survive in some form, or a lot of episodes survive in some form somewhere. But then there are the local oral traditions, which are remembered by by local sort of village-level griots, which oftentimes are about people more from the immediate vicinity of the settlement in question, and also has to do with uh, sort of memory of place, of different places or objects or natural features in the region. And so that's a different form of collecting of oral traditions. Rather than going for the big epics, you go for collecting micro-histories and what people's opinions are of different historical individuals and events locally. Then you can sort of map those out. And then finally, there is archaeology, which at this level, when we're dealing with historical archaeology, is about looking at effectively the historic geography as much as one would do, say, with Anglo-Saxon archaeology. You, you look at where settlements are located, what was going on at those settlements, what their different political roles are, what sort of imports uh, might be present, what sort of uh, industries might be present. And also what you're doing to an extent is you're providing a secure timeline or a means of... Uh, testing is probably too hard a word, but a way of negotiating oral traditions with rather rather more um, fixed uh, elements such as where settlements were and when they existed, their dates, and, and so forth. And, and to an extent also the material culture does give some indication of changing identity at these settlements. So what were the Mali Empire's greatest settlements? Is, is, is archaeology enabled us to establish what the capital of the empire was? To an extent, one has to look at this question from how internal and external scholars have viewed the geography of the empire of Mali. We have indicators from travellers like Ibn Battuta, and so we can try to use their accounts to zero in on, by, by their journey itineraries, where Mali's center or Mali's capital might have been. Within oral traditions, there are all sorts of contradictions, particularly about place. There's a reluctance to name the location of capitals, um, because in, in a, especially to to foreigners, uh, you know, there's there's the idea that this is going to perhaps give away the locations of graves or or, or monuments or, or so forth. But also, you have the fact that Mali evolved geographically over time. So, for example, we have three regions in contemporary Mali or Mali and Guinea which claim the name of Doe. And so there's a question, well, which was the Doe of Doe and Cree? And so we can use archaeology and oral history to look at this. The difficulty is when the, the French uh, arrived in Mali and essentially finished their conquest of Mali around 1892, there was already an immediate interest in the history of the empire of Mali amongst colonial historians. Mali, on the basis of Arabic texts, had already been written about extensively. Uh, For example, there was a book on the subject published in English by William Cooley in 1841. So this is before the the scramble for Africa. Uh, So there's already an an interest in this. And you had one very important French scholar uh, by the name of Delafosse who attempted to use uh, a mass of French colonial administrators as sort of uh, historical informants to gather data and traditions about the history of this part of West Africa and consolidate them into uh, a general history of this part of West Africa. And he, in fact, did this by 1912, this enormous three-volume text, Hot Senegal, Niger. 
And so in the doing of all of this, it became clear that there were two different hypotheses about the heartland of Mali and its capitals. One placed this heartland in the north, in an area which is no longer or was no longer dominated by the Malinke. Uh, so that is to say uh, around Segu, modern Segu, and just to the north of Segu. And another placed this farther south uh, in southern Mali and northern Guinea between Kangaba and a place called Nyani in, uh, in northern Guinea. And uh, at, at, at first, um, Delafosse tried to make a, a compromise between these hypotheses, saying that there was a more southerly site near Kangaba, which was sort of a proto-Malian capital. And then, then the, the great capital of Biti, uh, which was uh, encountered by Ibn Battuta, which supposed to was supposed to become a you know a capital even by the end of the reign of Sunjata, is more to the north. So probably on the north side of the Niger near Segu, but maybe on the south side. And uh, this uh, was also supported by French military explore, explorers like uh, Binger or Binger uh, in the late eighteen eighties, who said he even saw the ruins uh, of of such a place. But this all began to change in the in the 1920s uh, when uh, some French archaeologists, particularly Gaillard, said that he had found what he thought was the capital of Mali at Niani. This was in the 1920s. And this, of course, has been amplified by Diti Nyan, who was a, uh, a Ghanaian uh, scholar who wrote the sort of novelization of the Sunjata epic, which has proved extremely popular since the early 1960s. And so there was a time, particularly with the work of the uh, Polish archaeologist Ladislaw Filipowiak in the 1970s, where there was a move to uh, see the capital of Mali and the center of Mali in the south, in northern Guinea, and in southern Mali. The problem is, is that the when, as Niani has been excavated, there is not terribly much from the site that can be securely dated to the time of the Empire of Mali itself, before and after, but not during. And so, more recently, there has been a shift with uh, Dauda Kieta, who's the uh, head of the National Museum in Mali, and myself and Nicholas Gestrick, who's with the Framinius Institute in Frankfurt, who have been working together to look uh, at this potential heartland of Mali, which is in the Segu region. And there now we've come across three of the largest urban settlements known uh, from anywhere in Mali, and they all date to the time of the Empire of Mali, which is a pretty strong indication that we're moving in the in the right direction. But this is just an absolutely enormous amount of research, which is just beginning. And of course, with the current security and political situation in Mali, it's difficult for anyone, even uh, purely Malian teams, to work securely uh, in uh, the key areas for investigating this question. Now, you mentioned... Uh, French imperialists uh, just then. What was their reaction to finding evidence of the Mali Empire? I mean, did, did it challenge their their preconceptions of Africa and Africans? They knew that empires existed. I mean, at least anyone, you know, those of them who were uh, reading books uh, about the history of the, of the region, I'm sure there are you know many who never did so, and so they wouldn't know. But but if they were aware of any sort of scholarly work, which did exist at that time uh, about the history of this part of the world, they would have known that there were a succession of of empires, and of course a lot of the colonial administrators, as I said, would have been being instructed to collect information on these. But the problem is that the syntheses which were being made and these various colonial mindsets 
were saying yes, you know, there were monuments and empires in this part of the world, but the motive for that, the stimulus for that, was not local. It was from the north, that these are civilizations which are inspired by elite immigrants, uh, whether they're coming from, from Yemen uh, or, uh, you know, Judeo-Syrian uh, or Arabic or Berber or whatever. It was anyone but the Mande peoples themselves who were behind forming and administrating these empires. So that was the lie at the heart of all of this and the, the inherent racism which was, which was present uh, which was saying, yes, you know, these things are all there, and look, you know, there's a massive tumulus, oh, look, there's a massive settlement, and there are all these ruins. But this was because this was all being stimulated from a, a genius coming from abroad, and that uh, that was bestirring all of this to civilization. And, of course, that was a long time changing, and it was only really some more far-sighted historians like Nehemia Levtsian or Basil Davidson, uh, a popular historian amongst others who began to turn this around, but also as the archaeology, particularly the archaeology in the 1970s um, by people including Roderick and Susan McIntosh, who demonstrated that urbanism and social complexity was present in this area long before Islam. And, you know, with, uh, as work has progressed, that's just been pushed back farther and farther. I spoke about Tichit Walata also. So, so that, that change came about decisively in the 1970s, but it took an awful long time coming. I mean, just rewind it a, a little bit. What kind of interactions did the Mali Empire have with contemporary Europeans? I mean, that's a question from Zeus99 on Instagram. I think the empire of Mali or the power of the empires in the sub-Sahara became increasingly known to Europeans in the late medieval era. If you look at the Portuguese and their entire agenda to expand as a nautical power to navigate us in a sophisticated way to work their way south and around the African coast, which is happening in the 15th century, so the 1400s. They were aware that there is a major power to the south of Morocco, which is supplying a, a range of commodities, including gold, that they want to cut out the middleman on. They want to get around Morocco. So they try to leapfrog along the coast to a point where they can trade directly with these empires. But as this is happening, of course, Mali is beginning to disintegrate, to retreat. So they weren't dealing directly with Mali. But you do have geographers uh, Portuguese geographers who are beginning to talk about the interior. They're beginning to talk about the names of the great cities of the interior, which they are getting at one remove. They're not traveling there themselves. They're picking these up on the coast from people who have been there, and they're entering them into their geographies. So yes, as we reach the end of the Empire of Mali, there are Europeans who are coming close, although we don't know of any individual European, plenty of uh, in, in, in individual North African or Western Asian travelers. Less certain, it, it could be, uh, but 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 generally, this contact was at one remove. And finally, Kevin, you mentioned now that the the downfall of the Mali Empire. What what were the factors that triggered that downfall? I think, really, Mali reduced in stages. As I say, probably Mali was at its height in the 1300s, but it always had various rivals around it. It was hardly alone in the landscape, and unlike any empire, you have breakaway segments at the edges 
that you can't, uh, that, you know, that secede and then try to carve out their own niche and their own power in that area. I Earlier, I mentioned Songhai. The Songhai are not uh, Mande. The Songhai speak a Nilo-Saharan language, and their heartland is the Niger Bend around Gao, down to uh, into what is now Niger, down to, say, the area around the capital of Niger today, Niamey. And so they were uh, extremely well organized, uh, had, a, had a, a large and effective military, and um, from the mid-15th century, so from around 1450, Songhai begins to launch large-scale military campaigns against Mali, particularly into this area, um, which would in, in include the, the general region of Segu today, so Mali's second city today. And uh, and so between 1450 and 1500, there's effectively a, a rolling campaign of conquest and domination in that area, which forces Mali, I think, to largely abandon these zones and then reinvent itself farther to the south and almost reimagine its landscape and its heartland. I mean, part of what they would have had would have been part of the original heartland, but also they're moving more to the south, and I think they're probably acknowledging that land farther to the uh, to the east is lost to Songhai. And so I think there's then sort of a, a, a reformulation of a rump empire that then continues in some form as a polity, you know, at least, I think, going into the 17th century. And that also might correlate with the ruins of Niani in, uh, in northern Guinea. So, you know, it's, it's, it's largely about the influence of the Songhai becoming preeminent. Although also, as time goes on, there's a reorientation of trade away from the Trans-Sahara, which Mali had dominated. Mali also loses, of course, its outposts, its entrepot in the Sahara, which were critical to its trade there around the same time, because you also have, you know, the advance of Berber uh, and uh, uh, influence. You have the uh, the Tuareg or the Tamilshek, which is also having an effect. And then, of course, you have the advent in the late 15th century, uh, the increasing importance of uh, transatlantic trade, which, of course, then becomes, by the 17th century, is really the, the, more, the more important, uh, geographically speaking, aspect of the trade. And then the um, societal disruption of the, of the slave trade as well, coming in slowly. But it all touches off, really, with uh, the Songhai expansion. That was Kevin MacDonald, Professor of African Archaeology at UCL. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.